Almost everyone loves a good story, even from childhood. We have no doubt loved stories. Stories can be very powerful, illuminating, inspiring, and especially especially memorable. They're very useful in teaching and very useful in sermons. Charles Spurgeon said that a sermon without illustrations is like a house without windows. But he also cautioned that you don't want a house that's only windows. And he continued, Spurgeon continued to say, often when didactic speech, that is speech that is teaching, when you're teaching, when didactic speech fails to enlighten our hearers, We may make them see our meaning by opening a window and letting in the pleasant light of analogy. You may build up laborious definitions and explanations and yet leave your hearers in the dark. But a thoroughly suitable metaphor will wonderfully clear the sense. And I think that's very true. We can just pile on definitions and explanations and yet it can be as as we would say, clear as mud. But a window, an analogy can really clear up what we're trying to say. Well, Jesus filled His sermons and teachings with windows. In fact, if you'll look at the latter portion of the Olivet Discourse, a discourse that begins in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, if you look at that discourse, particularly the latter portion of it, chapter 25, but even going back up into chapter 24, beginning around verse 37 or so, you will notice that it is one story, analogy, parable, illustration, after another, after another, after another. He piles them on. There is in chapter 24, verse 36, the illustration from the life of Noah and the antediluvian period. In 24, verse 43, there's the story about the thief coming in the night. In 24, 45, it's kind of the Jekyll Hyde story, the faithful and wise servant, or will he be the wicked servant? In 25, 1, there's the parable of the ten virgins. In 25, 14, the talents. In 25, 31, the illustration we, can, we often call it the shepherd separating the sheep and the goats, but really he just makes that reference once and then he never picks it back up again. That's really not what's going on here. It's about a king. And he just makes one reference to a shepherd. But that's what it's known as, the separation of the sheep and the goats. The Bible, in fact, is full of stories. A large portion of the Bible is related to us via stories. Now, some of these stories are about real people 
and real places and real events. And in theological vernacular, that would be called historical narrative. Historical narrative. And yet, some stories that we have in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, are parables. They're analogies. They're illustrations. They are about real truths, but they use fictitious characters or fictitious um, situations. Now, often these stories that we read particularly um, when we think about Old Testament uh, stories and we think about historical narrative, a lot of times these stories are viewed only as moral lessons. And that even comes through the New Testament as well. We read these accounts and we look at them and we view them merely as a moral lesson. What moral lesson can I learn from this narrative? And while there may be moral lessons to be learned, surely that is part of what we are to, to learn. There is much more than a moral lesson in most historical narratives. For example, all of you are familiar with the narrative, no doubt, of the wilderness temptation of Jesus Christ, are you not? Of how that... He is, before his ministry begins, his public ministry begins, he is driven to the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. He's fasted. He's hungry. He's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. This is in Matthew 4. And then Satan comes to him and Satan tempts him. And because he's hungry, he's been fasting. The first temptation Satan brings to him is, if, if you really are the Son of God, just turn these stones to bread. Oh, now you can see what a wonderful temptation that is. You can really prove who you are by just turning these stones to bread. You can feel your hunger. You will not be hungry anymore. There'll be no doubt that you are the Messiah. And you can do it just like that. And Jesus responds. How does he respond? Do you remember? It is written. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Twice more, he's, he's tempted. And in both occasions, how does Jesus respond? It is written. Now, most of the time, how have we heard that preached? When we're facing temptation, what, what should we do? We should say, what does the Bible, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What does the Bible say? It is written. And that's our response. So we take that and it's taught as a moral ditty, a moral lesson. <laughs> But while that may be true, that's kind of like taking the dust and pushing the dust around on the lectern. You really haven't touched the passage. Really. Not at all. 
Christ is the second Adam, the last Adam. The first Adam failed. When he was tempted, he really did question the Word of God. Well, he, didn't, he was not obedient. He put himself above what God said, and he failed. And he wasn't in the wilderness. He was in a garden. And he sinned. And as a federal head, all of mankind was plunged into sin. Yet, our federal head is not in a garden. He's in a wilderness. And when he is tempted by the tempter, he doesn't fail. He is the Son of God. He resists. He overcomes the temptation. He doesn't succumb to that. He is my federal head. And there's so many lessons, and not just lessons, there's the victory of Christ. The statement of who He is. So there's so much more in that. So it's, it's not just a, a moral lesson there. There's a declaration of Jesus Christ in that. Well, stories in the Bible, yes, they do give us moral lessons, but they also demonstrate the attributes of God, His faithfulness, His sovereignty. And we see these attributes and this who God is worked out. We see the providence of God worked out in front of our eyes uh, as we read these historical narratives through the Scriptures. We see the Gospel being progressively revealed and declared. Well, Jesus was a great, the greatest teacher. When he preached and taught, he taught the people as one they'd never heard before. And he employed stories, fables, illustrations, analogies, parables. The word parable means to come alongside. And we know on one occasion when his disciples asked him why he taught in parables, he said that he did that because that those who were not believers couldn't understand, they couldn't see. But now when I look at Matthew 25, I understand there's, no, there's not unbelievers there. Well, maybe with the exception of Judas. He's talking to his disciples. So this isn't given to hide things. He's really illustrating truths to his disciples here. But the word parable means to come along to side. It means to take two things and place them side by side for comparisons. It's like metaphors and similes. And so a simile, you remember from your days in school, you always use like or as. In a metaphor, you didn't use like or as. And so you look at Matthew 25 and it starts off, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Oh, I've got a simile. I know it's a simile. And then I go down to verse 14, for it will be like. In the next parable, I have a simile. He's laying two things out side by side. He's telling me a story and he's making a comparison for me. Now, Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven will be like 
and he, he compares it, an illustration of ten virgins, it will be like, and then he goes on with the, with the talents, and, he, and, and the topic continues as he gets into it. Now, I want to note at the beginning today that the Olivet Discourse, going back to 24-4 to the end of 25, that Jesus gave and taught this discourse in one setting. It was not a series of sermons over six months. He gave it at one time. It probably took a little longer to give it than it takes me to read it. But I would surmise that this whole discourse took what? 45 minutes an hour? I don't know. Something like that. That's the length of time it took him to give this discourse. I mean, I don't have that in the Scripture, but this, this is a, a, a once setting he gives the discourse. Here it is. He fills the discourse with windows and he tells these stories one after another. And I, and I want you to think of them as, a, as sort of an anthology. So when I say that, I don't want you to think of these stories, these parables, as a bunch of unrelated stories. I want you to realize as we begin to look at the passage today that there's continuity in these stories. As you move through the passage, there's continuity in these stories. There's a connectivity in these stories. One story connects to the next, next, connects to the next. And there is a completeness when you begin to look at the whole passage, there's a completeness in these stories. So I have a continuity, I have a connectivity, and I have a completeness when I begin to look at all of it together. It gives me a complete picture. And I don't want to lose that. I thought about this passage and I've, I've considered it. What Christ was teaching. And I don't want to lose that by just breaking it up and dividing it in all these little tiny pieces. Uh, there's a time and a place to, to you know, put the passage under a microscope. But what I want to do is stick with the purpose and His use of stories. And I want you to see this as a whole because that's the way He gave it. You, are you, do you, you follow what I'm saying? Okay. And I think we lose that a lot of times. I think we lose things in the Scripture a lot of times because we don't look at it that way. We're so focused and we break things into 40 sermon series we don't see things as a whole and Christ gives this as a whole for us and that's what I want us to see okay now you recall that the recall the context of this of this discourse it begins in Matthew really go back to Matthew 23 because it's been some weeks since we've been here so let me just refresh our minds for a moment it begins back in the temple and Jesus has denounced the religious leaders, the, Jew, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and he pronounces seven woes on these leaders. And one, one person has noted, uh, when God utters woe against evil men, he sets his divine judgment in motion. Okay, he's, he's, he's declared woes. And then after that, verse 37 of, of Matthew 23, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He's weeping over something we discussed on one Wednesday night. 
He's, discuss, he's, he's weeping over what might have been but will never be. What could have been but never was because of Jerusalem's hardness of heart. And he weeps. And he weeps over what was going to be, absolutely will be, because of God's justice. And that is God bringing His judgment and justice upon the city, the town, the construct, the, what Jerusalem represents in Jerusalem itself. And so Christ laments and He says, your house, verse 38, your house is left to you desolate. Now His disciples hear this. Chapter 24. They leave the temple. And as they leave the temple, His disciples, you can almost see them in your mind as it were grabbing his, the skirts of His, of his garments saying, but, 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 but look, look. Look at, the, look at the grandeur of the buildings. Look at the temple, Lord. It's magnificent. And they're just pointing at the, at the grandeur of the buildings to Him. And He stops and He looks at them as it were. And He says, but I tell you, there will not be one stone left upon another. It's all coming down. And that's Matthew 24, the first three verses. Truly, I say to you, verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they walk away. He leads them away. They leave Jerusalem. They cross the brook Kidron. They go across to Mount of Olives. They go up the Mount of Olives, and we read in the other Gospels how Christ takes a strategic position on the Mount of Olives so that they're looking down on the temple. And there He sits down, and there His disciples are with Him on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. And all this time, this 30-40 minute walk, you know what they've been thinking. I mean, you know what they've been thinking. He just told us all that's coming down. He just said that the house of Jerusalem is left desolate. And all this time, all this is churning in their brains. They go across, they sit down, and they're looking at it. They're looking at the city. They're looking at the temple. And they ask Him questions. And in their mind, the questions apparently they're asking are all together one question. When is this going to happen? What would be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And, and we looked at that, and, we, and I want, I'm not going to go back through all of that. I spent some hours on that with you. But it's like in their mind, the, the, the end of time all comes to bear on what that, all of that is together. But it's clear. When Jesus answers them, He separates these events. That's very clear as you look at the passage. Jesus separates out these events. We'll mention that a little bit more even 
today, but it's clear even in verse 36 of 24, even in the Greek, in the language he uses here, he uses a contrastive conjunction, and it's very clear in the, in the Greek. What he's doing is there's two events, and Jesus is separating events. One event is the destruction of Jerusalem, and the other event is His coming, His second coming. The parousia. And so one thing happens in AD 70, and for that He warns His disciples, and He says, these are signs. Signs of when you know that this is going to happen. And when you see these signs, run for your life. Get out of Jerusalem. Flee. And you better pray when that happens that that you don't have to run on the Sabbath and pray that you're not with child, that you're pregnant, or you're not nursing. Now we've seen it. We've seen pictures of that, have we not? Just in the last days and weeks from the Ukraine. Think what it would be like to be in a Mariupol. I've been in Mariupol. I met with the mayor of Mariupol years ago. Think what it would have been like to be in Mariupol and have the troops invading. It would be one thing to be young and healthy and be able to run. It would be another thing to be old and and not so healthy. It would be another thing to be nine months pregnant or nursing a child or to be in the dead of winter with snow up to your knees. And Christ says, when you see these signs, if you're on the house, don't even, get, don't even go inside and try to save your belongings. Run to the hills. And if you're in the field working, don't even go back to get your coat. Run! Because the Romans, he didn't say the Romans, but we know that's what happened. The Romans are coming. And it's going to be, if the, day, if the tribulation of those days had not been shortened, they, nobody would have made it. Nobody. But for the sake of the elect, those days were shortened. But there's a shift at verse 36. So he tells them, These days, there's warnings, there's signs. When you see verse 15 of 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Flee! But now we come to verse 36. There's a shift. But that day, that, that day is a technical term. That day is a specific term. That day is the term used for parousia. That day is the last day. That's the day of judgment. That's the same term used in Matthew 7.22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do many many mighty works in your name? That's the same term that's used in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Now, some translations wrongly omit the, the conjunction but. But in the Greek, it's peridae. And it's used often in the Scriptures to introduce a new subject. And it's used that way here. 
And it's distinguishing that day from what was talked about before. And, and Christ makes a remarkable statement here in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. What? Not even Jesus knows that day. The timing of that day. Say that again. We'll read it. I didn't make it up. Jesus in His humanity did not know the timing of that day. Now in the early church, there was a lot of confusion about the person of Jesus Christ. There were people that erred to the side of that He's just a man. They didn't understand He was the God-man. That He was divine. And there were people that erred on the other side that that he's God and he's, he wasn't, wasn't man. That he was the God-man. In AD 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, there was a statement that was made. We have basically a restatement of it in our, in our um, uh, Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession. But in, in 451, this statement was made at the Council of Chalcedon. We all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. It's like the Trinity in this sense. You want me to explain it? I can't. I state it because the Scripture stated it. How can that be? I don't know. It's, it's an easy doctrine to state, but it's hard to grasp. And Jesus says in verse 36 that not even the Son knows when that day will be. The Son in His humanity did not know. Certainly in His divinity He knew, and He knows. But here's what I want you to consider and realize. That day is unknowable. The day before the coming destruction of Jerusalem was knowable. That day is not knowable. And yet people still walk around and talk about the signs of His coming. And Jesus just said, nobody knows it. And we're going to get more into that in just a minute. And here's another thought. Jesus did not need to know it in order to be faithful to the work the Father gave Him. He didn't need to. And He was faithful to the work the Father gave Him to do. Nor do I need to know it, nor do you need to know it. In fact, I would suggest it's folly to seek to know that which God has deliberately hidden. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. This is, a, this is a hidden matter. It's His. It's not mine. They belong unto Him. But what's revealed belong unto us that we may obey that which has been written for us to obey. Now, see, Jesus gave us stories. God gave us stories. That's a book by Richard Pratt that he 
published back in the 90s, I believe. I sort of borrowed that from him. But the theme of the Olivet Discourse, beginning then here in verse 36 and moving forward, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he begins then with the story of Noah. And the story he gives us here is to, to, is to make the point. Nobody knows that day. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, nor, nor, uh, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only, for... Now he tells a story. And why does he tell me the story? To make the point, to illustrate the point he just made. And the point he just said was, nobody knows that day. Now he gives us an illustration, a story. And he gives us the story of Noah. And he tells that story to emphasize the point nobody knows. Now, in the days of Noah, life was going on as normal until verse 39. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Noah was not spared, nor his household was not spared the flood because he knew when the flood was going to happen. But he was spared because by the grace of God, yes, he knew a flood was going to happen. He knew that it was coming, like you know Christ is coming. But he knew by the grace of God, he believed God, he was warned by God, and he believed God, and he lived his life prepared. No one knew that day. And the flood came. Not even Noah knew when it was coming. But he obeyed God. And then we go from that. He takes us right on into the story, verse 40 through 44, of the, of the story of the workers. Two men in the field, two women at the mule. And they're going to be working in the field. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Two women grinding, one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Now, there's a certain element in eschatology that will use this passage to teach the rapture. But you know, it seems that the very opposite is being taught. Who was taken away during the flood? And who was left? Who was taken away in the flood? The wicked. Who was left? The righteous. And he moves out of that story right into this story. He's just, it's connected. He's just flowing through. He's telling stories to illustrate the point. Nobody knows. Just be ready. And the flood, it wasn't the saved that were taken away, it was the lost that were snatched away in judgment. But in verse 42, the point. Stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. There's the point. Same thing he started out with. Then we go right to the parable of the thief. He's just flowing right into that one. Just making the point, illustrating the same point. Verses 43 and 44. Jesus uses this parable to illustrate the point. No one knows when Christ is coming again. The thief didn't advertise, hey, homeowner, I'm 
sending you this notice here in the mail or look at my postcard, look at my poster right here. I'm coming to rob you tonight. Thieves don't send out advertisement. Christ doesn't advertise His return. He's just coming at an hour you think not. That's the story. He's coming, but you don't know when. Be ready. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, don't make more of the story than the story. All of these stories are telling you the same thing. He's illustrating it time and time and time again. So we move on. Then we have the story of the servant. Live ready. Well, what does that mean? Ah, here's our connection. Now I've got a story of a servant. Verse, chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. No one knows when that day will be, so be ready for that day. So how can I be ready? Well, in this story, a parable, a master gives his servants responsibility. He goes away. And the wise and faithful servant is diligent and he obeys his master. Verse 46. Um, let me back up to 45. Who, is, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He's doing what his master is giving him to do. And so that's the wise and faithful servant. He is being obedient to what his master has given him to do. But the wicked servant, verses 48 through 49, thinking that the master is delayed, then his evil intentions start coming out and he is slothful. Ah, verse 49. The verse 50, well, at the 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with drunkards. In verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. Same story. Here he comes. But we have a new aspect added in this one. And the new aspect is the master is wrathful when he comes, verse 51. He's wrathful because this servant is disobedient and wasteful. And he cuts him in pieces, places him with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we live Coram Deo before the face of God. Live as before and in the presence of God. But the stories continue. Chapter 25. The theme remains the same. Christ is coming. He's coming again. And then we have the parable of the ten virgins. But I want you to notice the parable of the ten virgins ends. Verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We've heard that over and again, haven't we? That parable ends like the first section begins and ends. First section basically began that way, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And it ended basically that same way. Verse 44, that, that section right there, uh, the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You don't know. 
And that next part starts the same way. And the parable of the talents, the next parable, it ends, verse number 30, where that servant will be cast into a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It ends the same way that second section also ended with this slothful servant being cast out to that place in verse number 51 where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's connection here. See that? Things the same, but he's just telling the stories, illustrating his points. Okay, but there is a shift. Here's a shift at 25.1, and the shift is this. Then, the kingdom of heaven is like. There's your shift. Now, it's my understanding, and I'm of the opinion, that what is represented in these next stories in 25 is what we might call the visible church. And by that I I, I mean, and I am including any and all who profess to be Christian. Whether they are attenders or not makes not the point. Anybody who claims to be Christian falls into these categories. And I think that's part of the point here in Matthew 25. And again, my intent is to see the stories as stories. Not to get lost in the argumentation about why ten virgins and what's the oil. And there's another, We'll get into that another time if you want to. That's not my point today. I'm trying to get you to see the stories as stories. So in 25, 1 through 13, we have the parable of the ten virgins or bridesmaids, or perhaps groomsmaids. Again, I'm not going to argue that point with you. It's not important for the story, I don't think. But their role was to greet the groom when he came to the wedding banquet. And that banquet, most likely, again, I'm not going to argue the point, but that Banquet most likely was at the home of the groom. And this was a festive procession. And so these virgins, these young ladies, these bridesmaids had these lamps, oil lamps. And when the groom came, their uh, part of the ceremony was to go out and They'd light their lamps and they'd go out and they'd have this wonderful procession of lights and they'd be up on their sticks and they would they would come in with him and it'd all be lit and this festive show as the groom came in. Well, in the story we have five wise and five foolish. Now what separate what makes them wise and what makes them foolish? What they have on? Nah. They're virgins? Nah. They got lamps? Nah. What makes them wise and what makes them foolish? Extra oil. They were prepared. They were ready. 
for the groom's coming. What made them foolish was they were not ready for the groom's appearing. That, that's it in a nutshell, from being wise and foolish. Well, the groom is delayed. Now, that's a repeated theme, as you notice in a lot of these stories. The servant, the master, the groom, over and over, you'll find he's delayed. Goes away, doesn't get back as quick as they expect, whatever. Here, the groom is delayed, and they all go to sleep. They're not condemned for going to sleep. They're tired. There's no condemnation for that. And at midnight, the cry goes out, the groom's here! And they all jump up to trim their lamps. That means they prepare it and they light their wicks and get everything ready to go. But to the dismay of the five foolish, while their lamps may light with a little bit of vapor they had left on the wick, it will burn out and they have no more oil. And they can't, their lights won't stay lit. They're not ready. They're not prepared and the five wise, or excuse me, the five foolish say to the five wise, well, give us some oil. And the five wise say no. Well, they're not reprimanded for saying no. That's not the point. Again, don't miss the story. Because, well, they should have shared with them. That's not the point of the story. <laughs> they say no. Go buy you some more oil. And they go out to meet the groom because they're ready. And so the five foolish scurry off to go find them some oil. And they, whatever, and they come back, and when they get back, well, guess what? The wedding, the groom is in, celebration started, door shut, and they come, let us in, let us in, go away. I do not know you. Now, in William Hendrickson's commentary he makes a couple of observations I just want to follow and share with you because I thought they were worthy all who profess Christ are alike in many ways but these similarities are superficial and they are essential differences Now, there are, but sometimes they are difficult to see. And this is one of the difficulties sometimes you face when you're talking to a candidate, let's say, for baptism or even membership. There, there are a lot of similarities, but sometimes they're on the surface. And then there are the common threads in these stories. And I just mentioned one, there are a long span of time between the first and second coming of the Lord, but, there, but there's one of the uh, common threads we find in these stories is delay. There's a delay between the servant, the master, excuse me, the master, the groom, whoever going away and him coming back. A second is the sudden return, and that return of the, of the Lord, the groom, or whoever it may be in these cases, is it's visible and it's audible. That's another thing you find in, in these accounts. Third, and that is faith and preparedness are not transferable. 
the five wise couldn't give to the five foolish. They wouldn't. They couldn't. And when the door shuts, it's shut. When it's done, it's done. There's many times in my life I've been I've been wearing a hat, a parrot, had an opportunity at something, whatever it may be. And about the time it was over, I would think, I think about figured out how to do this. You ever felt like that? Thought like that? And I would and I would think, you know, if I could just go back and redo it, I would do a better job at it. And this is not a news flash, you know this. We don't get mulligans in life. You don't get do overs. This is it. Those five foolish virgins came to the door. There wasn't a do over. Ecclesiastes says, if a fall, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. And not so many years ago, when I spent more times in the wood, more time in the woods, hunting or whatever I might be doing, just enjoyed it. Just about every time I would come to a deadfall, a tree, whatever, I would think of that, that. I would think of that proverb, really, in Ecclesiastes. As a tree falls, so shall it lie. It's done. It's over. Finished. Then we go to the parable of the talents. Verses 14 through 30. This parable takes up where the last, left, last one left off. So what does preparedness look like? These five foolish weren't prepared. What does it look like? And so in this one we have a man going away and he entrusts his property to his servants. And the anticipation of the master is that the servants will be responsible, they'll be faithful, they'll be active, and they will return to him not only what he has entrusted to them, but more. Now, I agree with R.T. France, and, I, and years gone by, I've just preached just this parable before, and I've approached it this way, that I don't think these talents represent natural gifts so much as they do specific privileges and opportunities that we are given in the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, in, in the work of God. And I think generally, a lot of times their, their approach is, well, you know, God gives us all talents. And well, that's true, but I don't think that's what this is about. But in this parable, the master's gone a long, long time, and he, he returns and he settles accounts. And the two faithful servants give back what they were given plus. And the unfaithful servant, and they're rewarded. And the unfaithful servant unjustly indicts the master. Well, the reason I didn't do anything is because you're not a very good master. And I knew I couldn't please you to start with. 
You're hard. You're not gracious. So I just thought the best thing I could do is bury it. And I just give you what you gave me. He indicts the master. And so the master, as it were, picks up on his indictment and says, well, if that's the case and you knew I was that kind of person to start with, well, then if you'd have used any wisdom at all, then you should have done this. Of course, he's not that kind of master. He's not that kind of Lord. He's gracious. He's good. But that is the way of sinful people, isn't it? But then the Lord orders that servant stripped of what he has. And some people go, well, that's not very good. Taken away from the poor and given to the rich. But Luke, I think, gives us a little insight there. He says that he takes away what he thinks he has. He thinks he has something. He doesn't even really have what he thinks he has. And he gives it. And he casts the servant into outer darkness. And we all ought to be conscious and, and, and desirous to be faithful in using and availing ourselves of every opportunity of service the Lord gives us. Every opportunity the Lord gives us. I think, again, that's what this is about. It's not God gave me a voice and I can sing. Well, yes, that's true and you should. I'm not saying no to that. But you only have so many opportunities of serving God. Only so many opportunities of, of, of availing yourselves of the means of grace. And you should. You know, at the Day of Judgment, it's not the number of opportunities I've had that God's going to say, well, you, you had this many number of opportunities. But it's going to be, what did you do with the number of opportunities you had? You know, most of the time we think about sin, we think about sins of commission. Thou shalt not. And that's what we think about. But you know, there is a thing called sin of omission. Thou shalt. Our catechism question was on a, on a positive. Remember the Lord's day to keep it holy. That's a positive commandment. And there's many sins of omission, things that we ought to do. But the wicked are always ready to offer excuses and blame others for why they haven't. It's somebody else's fault. It's even God's fault. And then we come to the last story. I must close this out. But we come to the last story. And it's a symbolic description of the last judgment. And it really goes into detail on this life of serving God. In verse 31, we have a picture of the enthroned King of Kings. And in verses 32 and 33, Jesus compares the actions of the king to a shepherd. A shepherd separating sheep from the goats. In verse 34 and following, you go back to the king and the shepherd's not mentioned again. 
But that's usually the picture we have in our mind when we come here is the shepherd and the sheep. But he, he references him once at the beginning, that's it. But before the king will be gathered all peoples, all nations, all peoples. None are excluded. All will be present. And the king will divide out all the people into two groups. There's only two kinds of folks. Saved or lost. Blessed or cursed. And they will hear one of two words. Come. Blessed. Depart. Cursed. And the evidence of genuine faith and love for the Lord are good works. And those good works are expressed by how we treat the others, especially those of the community of faith, those of the covenant family. It's our love, our care, and our faithfulness to other believers because Jesus would say to those that were shocked, Lord, when did we do this for you? As often as you did it to my brothers. When, Lord, when did we not do this to you? As often as you did not do it to my brothers. So it's in the community of faith that we really see this worked out. And I would say, see covenant. Read covenant of EBC closely. That's where you begin to see it worked out in detail. So, um, there's a lot, lot, lot more I could say about that, but I've, I've not used my time wisely, and so I'm kind of up against it here. So I want to, I got some closing comments I want to make. So, what do these stories relate? They're all telling you the same thing. Telling me too. They're all telling us the same thing, and each one of them are connected. What are they telling us? No one knows when Christ will come again. That's one thing they're telling me. So let me give you some counsel. Don't listen to, nor waste your money on those who suggest they do. I want to sell you a book about the signs of His return. It's baloney. B. There are such a, there is such a thing. There is such a thing as a nominal Christian. A person who thinks he's a real Christian, but is not. He's got the robe, he's got the vesture, he's got the look, he's got the lingo, he's got the walk, he's got the talk. He's even sitting there with the rest of the, as it were, the virgins waiting. But when the cry comes, they're not ready. They're not ready. See, although Jesus may delay His coming, He is coming again. D, we all have been given, and I know that I can say, I can use the pronoun we there because you're sitting here today. So we all have been given the Word of God. 
And by that, if I'm a believer or not, still there is a certain awareness. You have a certain awareness. You have an awareness of the reality of God, of His holiness, of His sovereignty. He's king of His commands. You also have a certain awareness of sin, of the penalty of sin, and of accountability before God. God is king. He's holy. I'm a sinner. He holds me accountable. I'll stand before Him. You know that. You can deny it, but you know it. If you never knew it before, you just heard me tell you. And you also know something about the gospel. And the gospel is that God has provided most graciously His Son. That if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, believe truly and confess that He is the Christ, you will be saved. That His righteous justice will be satisfied in the Savior Jesus Christ. And on the day of judgment, you'll not be found among the goats and hear the words, depart, cursed. But you'll hear the words, come, blessed. And it will not have anything to do with your goodness or your righteousness, but the grace and goodness of God Almighty and the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. If you don't know that before you know it now and it has nothing to do with walking down an aisle or raising your hand or anything else like that it has to do with you before God and calling upon Christ in faith and asking him to save you and if you don't feel the weight of your sin ask God to Help you feel the way of your sin. Help him, ask him to help you know that you are a sinner. And God has also given you opportunity. Our brother prayed about the breath in his lungs and the heartbeat in his chest. And lest my eyes deceive me, I see no physical corpses sitting here today. So I know that you have breath in your lungs and heartbeat in your chest. So the door hasn't been shut yet. So today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart.
but hear the Lord. Now I want to close with a story. You've heard of Harry Truman? Well, let me tell you about Harry Truman, not the president from Missouri, but a bootlegger and a prospector and the owner of St. Helen's Lodge at Spirit Lake. 83-year-old, hard-hearted, hard-headed man that was warned and warned she's going to blow. She's going to blow. And he said, nah, been here all my life. She's not going to blow. Quote, everything will be okay. Quote, that mountain will never harm me. On May 18th, 1980, she blew. And blew with a force of from 10 to 50 megatons of TNT, which was equivalent to 25,000 atomic bombs that were exploded over Hiroshima. Needless to say, I don't think there's any physical remains of Harry Truman left to be found. Well, in an hour, you think not. He's coming. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these stories that you have given us. Story after story after story that reminds us that your coming is real, that we do not know the time, but we are to live ready for that day. Lord, if our we know our hearts are often cold and they are insensitive. We've been desensitized and numbed by the world we live in, by the expanse of time. We pray that you would enliven us again by your Holy Spirit through your word, that these truths would be realities in our lives pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us, and believer or not, and that your word would encourage us, it would edify us, it would cause us to rejoice in the reality of your coming again, and if we're not uh, convinced of that, it would give us um, reason to uh, consider uh, these truths. Forgive us, we pray, of our sins. Draw us in a sacred nearness unto yourself. And continue, Lord, to bless us through the remaining 
meetings of this day, may our times together be profitable. I ask in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Stand together, we'll sing hymn 381, The Solid Rock, and we will sing the refrain after the last verse only. The chorus after the last verse only, please. 381. mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen.
Hey there. 